Welcome to Podcast on Fire on My Life as MacDal and Free Going Home. And it's the screen debut of Hong Kong's favorite contemplative piglet, who may not look like giant fat or Tony Long, but has ambitions nonetheless. And that uh, that all takes place, those thoughts, take, takes place in the 2001 animated movie My Life as MacDal. It gets a bit weird too. Also, Peter Chan returns to Hong Kong screens as part of the horror anthology Free, directing the award-winning piece Going Home from 2002. I'm going to be with me during a break in his bun-snatching training or turkey-eating habits, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. It's the co-host of East Screen, West Screen podcast, and it is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi there, everyone. Hey there, Ken. How you doing? It's, it's very good. Very good. Uh, was it uh, was it a part of a frequent revisit to the McDull series? This one or my love is McDull? It's been a while since you watched the very first one. It's been a while. I actually watched it when it first came out. I was in Hong Kong for a holiday. I remember watching it. It came out around the same time as Pongo Trans AV, and I remember watching it in the cinema. I even remember the cinema I watched it uh, in Dynasty. No, no, no. It was a proper, proper multiplex, actually. <laughs> proper, so it was, proper whole yeah. one. <laughs> so was it 2002? Was that the year? 2001 was My Life as McDonald's. 2001, that was probably like Christmas vacation, I think. Yeah, so I remember, definitely. Yeah, opened uh, December 15th and played for a healthy, uh, uh, a healthy uh, almost two months, uh, early February, is when its un- run ended. Yeah, actually, no, AV came out in 2005. But it's the same theater, so it's the same cinema. Um, one is 2001 Christmas, and one the other one is 2004 Christmas. Uh, no, sorry, March, around March of 2005. Okay, yeah, sorry, I got my dates mixed up, but okay. One uh, slightly more grimy movie and one more children's uh, friendly. So, uh, but uh, Could that, be a double feature, could be a double feature. Very much, very much. Uh, a- AV, despite its... Uh, topic uh, and all of that uh, with uh, featuring a Japanese porn star. I don't think that movie was category free, if I remember correctly. They kept it on the it down low. And there's actually a very interesting story about how Pongo managed to avoid it, but that's a not that's neither here nor there. Let's let's go back to Madol. Exactly, because we there's not going to be any rude language or any uh, any nudity as, as such here, because this was a healthy, wholesome category one, despite this being sort of uh, deep and sometimes weird uh, for a children's movie but uh, that's the sign of the series and will we'll certainly give us give you the sort of uh, down low on what to expect from the series because it isn't super straightforward necessarily just because it's uh, an animated movie it has things to say and styles that it explores so uh, we'll, we'll certainly get to it uh, some uh, plugging out of the way first you are the honorary uh, co-host and certainly co-producer because you're going to produce content from your mouth Kevin so from your mouth, uh, there's going to be some plugs as well. So the floor is yours. Or what do you want to plug in terms of the podcast or whatever you are working on or what you have been working on? Well, um, I'm the co-host of East Screen, West Screen, which is a podcast that I co-host with uh, Paul Fox. And we're over at www.concast.com. And also on Facebook, we're on East S, West S, that same, uh, same letter. Um, I know we were on hiatus for a little bit, but actually just... This morning, what we're recording right now, it's nighttime in Hong Kong, but uh, this morning, Paul and I just recorded our second episode of the year. So we have stuff coming out. Don't worry, we're coming back. Um, And of course, by the time this goes out, I'm sure there'll be more episodes out already. Sweet. Well, uh, looking forward to it because I am a devoted fan. As soon as it comes up in my feed, boom, download, boom, listen, because uh, you are an easy hour long listen. And uh, but therefore you 
can afford to indulge every now and again and break down the big block of Lunar New Year movies, uh, whether they're five in total or ten in total, because it can vary from year to year. And uh, looking forward to it greatly. So uh, as soon as it drops, then uh, consider me consider my ears uh, perked at that point. Thank you very much. Uh, cool. Um, any uh, because we, we we talk of the fact that you work on subtitles on movies and such. So uh, for the released uh, movies uh, and things like that, uh, prop yourself up and pl- plug yourself. Uh, any particular movies you worked on in translation capacity or uh, subtitle capacity that came out in twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. I mean, I was losing count to be honest. I had quite a few films. Um, some of my proudest the projects I'm really proud of. I did uh, Man on the Dragon, which is Sunny Chan's directorial debut. Project Gutenberg, which I actually worked on at the end of 2017, but it didn't come out until much later. I also worked on Integrity, which is one of the Lunar New Year movies this year. Um, I've also worked on Lady Improper, um, which is the Charlene Choi film that's going to be premiering over at Osaka International uh, Asian International Film Festival, sorry, Asian Film Festival. And also um, at my the festival I work for, um, Cinema Asia over in Amsterdam. And then there's also a Chinese film coming out called Push and Shove. That is from Edgo and uh, anything else? Oh, I also did a, um, a film that's right now in post-production. I probably shouldn't say anything, but it's um, under one another really big local company, but as a Chinese uh, language, as a Mandarin, as a man- mainland Chinese film. And then what else? Oh, I also did a art house film called Suburban Birds, which had its premiere in Locarno uh, last uh, August and has played in one or two other art house um, uh, film festivals. And yeah, that's about it for now. Also did some subtitle tweaking for this year's Hong Kong International Film Festival they have a few um, remastered um, older films two black and white films starring Li Li Hua and also um, three fifth generation Chinese um, directors films I might have another one but those are mainly subtitle vetting rather than really just subtitles so yeah though, so lots of lots of little projects here and there um, and I think there'll be more coming are you at all um, cooperating in any shape or form with the Hong Kong Film Archive and their disc releases that aren't they, well you can buy them but you can only buy them at the actual hong kong archive because i know they, they put out that like a blu-ray or a dvd of anhoy's the secret which i think is not on dvd yes. or blu-ray uh, are you involved at all uh, with that or are you simply a fan of it they so yes they re, they actually remastered that film and they released uh they produced a new blu-ray of it um and that they're selling for very cheap by the way uh, but it's only available at the hong kong film archive don't ask me why this is Hong Kong government bureaucracy. Just it's very difficult to get things out of that system once it once it's from there. So don't ask me why it's not on S Asia. Why it's not on those e-tail sites? Why is it not even in regular shops in Hong Kong? That's just the way the government works. I don't know. For them, it's very complicated to even try and do something like that. How many Western friends have approached you like Kevin? Can you go down to the Hong Kong film archive for me? I am buying at least four other copies other than my own. The reason they ask is that I live very close to the Hong Kong Film Archive. So, so that's the reason. Like, I live about um, uh, within walking distance of it. So for me, for them, what do they think it's easy? Um, well, actually, it should be easy for me. It's not that difficult to walk. If I'm any type of fan of exercising, actually, it's definitely not a problem. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mind. I mean, I like, because I regularly write for the Film Archive. I regularly do uh, translation for their booklets, um, for their publications, um, 
So I regularly work with them. And actually, I might have done a little bit of work for the booklet, but it didn't tell me whether it was for the for this Blu-ray or not. I checked the booklet. There's something that resembles my work, but they seldom trans, uh, credit translators for their for their uh, house programs. They do they do credit translators in their publications, which is why I got I got um credited for their 1970s Hong Kong cinema book last year, which I think it's a great book. Um, especially the ones that I didn't translate. Those are great, really great articles in there. And it's in English, and you can find it on the Hong Kong Film Archive. But no, I mean, I didn't really work on much things on, on this particular release. No. It's a, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the program can expand, because, I mean, it, it's it's merely a comparison in name. But for instance, the Korean Film Archive for a while did, and I think still does every now and again, like proper special deluxe editions. Uh, of uh, of uh, vintage movies that are sim- they're, they're not rehashes of their standard definition transfers from their YouTube channel, but are proper HD versions put out on disc, like Aimless Bullet, considered one of the greatest Korean movies ever made. That's on a special edition Blu-ray, and I'm it, I'm, I'm just hoping that that sort of government gridlock can mean that this can go on proper you know proper sites because um i mean it's not a blockbuster movie and hoist the secret but there are people who w- would be willing to pay not just 15 or 150 hong kong dollars but maybe a premium for a deluxe edition like that like, i i wouldn't mind paying 300 including shipping to sweden would you would you mind if i gripe about the hong kong government <laughs> sure sure we we, we got <laughs> well, all night <laughs> the, difference, the difference between the korean film archive and the hong kong film archive is that Korean government makes a real active effort and they pour in a lot of money to to build up this um, Korean film archive to turn Busan into a film city. They put the Korean Film Council there. They have the Busan Film Festival. They put the 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 I think the Korean film archive might be in Seoul. I'm not so sure about that. But the idea is that they get the money, the tour, the, the department ministry, uh, sorry, the Ministry of Arts. They get funding from ticket sales. In cinemas, they draw a certain amount from the ticket sales in cinemas, and they use that to fund subsidies for productions or the Korean Film Archive or Korean Film Council, uh, Busan Film Commission, which is a big, big, big thing because so many films get shot in Busan now. Whereas in Hong Kong, the the whispers that I hear is that the Hong Kong Film Archive doesn't get much money because the government doesn't want to appear biased. Like, they, they say that if they show... Give, give the film industry too much money, then it shows favoritism and the other industry might might gripe about this. That's why the Hong Kong International Film Festival has to beg for venues every year. That's why they don't have their own venue. Um, this is why um, the Hong Kong Film Archive doesn't have any money. They do, they do, um, but they don't get to they don't get to use the money to do a whatever they're doing, they have the money to do, but they don't have much money to expand beyond what they're doing right now. In fact, putting out Blu-ray is already a big deal. Mm. Um, that's like a once in a, a once in a decade thing almost. Well, no, they actually put put out some old black and white films on DVD. Um, it is the first time that they put it on uh, put a Blu-ray. Although from what I hear, you could actually write to the film archive and set up an, a mail order or something. But um, yeah, they're not making it easy. But anyway, that is the Hong Kong government's attitude um towards film unfortunately they they see everything as a free market mechanism mm. and they think that that uh, that as far as you know we sponsored a brewery of 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 the secret that's we've done what we need to do that's it so they, they almost like to do the bare minimum to get the credit and then they just walk away so unfortunately, we made it exist per definition yeah we made it exist and that's it we did our job so um, that is the attitude of the Hong government in general about everything. 
um, not to get political, but that's just the way the dice rolls. I mean, yeah, it's much easier to be a Korean film fan these days than a than a classic Hong Kong film fan because well also you also because you have that free mechanism in the history of hong kong cinema you got the rights being sprinkled everywhere and when certain companies <coughs> star, um hold <laughs> the rights to um and <coughs> um holds a huge huge batch of classic hong kong films and not willing to let it go unless it's for the right price it becomes very difficult for um fans of classic films to collect so that's how it rolls just call Fortune Star Satan. That's what I do. So. I didn't say the company name. Either. Oh well, well, I, I'm uh, I'm here over here in Sweden. No one, no one can touch me. No one can find me. Fortune Star Satan, <laughs> Satan. I'll tell you. Uh, okay, okay. We're we're gonna move on. Uh, uh, well, for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Our back catalog of uh, shows on vintage Hong Kong cinema and sometimes new, where with a mainland twist, I suppose, uh, because we've done Operation Red Sea and Wolf Warrior Two, etc. All of that is available on podcastonfire.com, along with the back catalog of all our other shows on Korean cinema. Japanese cinema, Sleazy cinema, and ninja movies and bonus episodes connected to a variety of the shows on the network. Our social media links are available in the form of buttons at the top of the page in the show post as well, and all that good stuff. And there you can find links to it in the specific show post all over the site. And my writing is linked to as well. We're gonna take a musical break and play some very cute music that I believe is performed by. Well, it it seems like it's a group, although it seems like a kids' group, because there, there's a credit across the My Life as McDowell soundtrack to The Pancakes. So I suppose I should find a song by The Pancakes to play here in the interim, in, in, the, in the break and all of that. So, Or, or McDowell's own uh, sort of centerpiece song. Uh, so uh, there's uh, going to be some very pleasant tones for you here, listeners. And uh, that will lead into the review of My Life as McDowell from 2001, an animated movie, maybe our first animated movie that I can uh, that we've ever reviewed here on, on the show, on the Hong Kong show. So uh, sit tight and we'll be right back. Welcome back, and the first review of this episode is My Life as McDull from 2001, and plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows and gives a little insight into the life of a little piglet here. So, McDull was born dim-witted despite his mother's prayers for a handsome, smart son. There's no dad around, so mom has to make do alone. Mom continually prays for McDull's luck in life to change. However, his desires are simple. He wants to go to the Maldives. He wants to have a turkey dinner for Christmas. He wants things that are beyond their means uh, as well. They really can't afford these things, but his mother tries to please him anyway. She gets him the turkey, but the leftovers drive him crazy. Instead of the Maldives, she takes McDull to the peak and pretends it is the actual holiday, <laughs> holiday vacation. Uh, in exchange, McDowell can only give into his mother's wishes and attempt to make something of himself. Uh, what uh, sort of the drive that, and what happens in the movie, his drive to make something out of himself manifests him itself in the form of that he decides to train to become an Olympic-level athlete like Hong Kong Olympian Lee San San. However, 
the trade he learns is uh, Cheng Chao bun catching, which involves training heavily to snatch meat buns from large towers. And the plot ends with, huh? Which is Koso Soto writing. Okay, that's how you break down a movie. No one was any smarter <laughs> smarter after having watched that because that it seems sort of random and sort of choppy, but the movie is made that way. So I think uh, Koso wrote a very uh, fair plot. But if that is any good or not, we'll get to it in a minute too, because uh, we'll do some background uh, too. The, this is a uh, an animated movie from 2001 feature film but the cartoon pig character created by Alice Mack and Brian Che has been present in comics since the 1990s uh, I, he was actually uh, first featured as a side character and uh, maybe Kevin has heard of this uh, through the years because uh, b- before we get into it I, I I can just bet like throw a rock and you'll hit something McDull related in Hong Kong, be it, uh, you know, a mug or a t-shirt or a comic, or or, uh, or am I completely wrong in that McDowell merch is uh, is uh, rampant, or has it, like, been reduced over the years in terms of uh, merch? Yeah, I mean, there was a time when it was literally everywhere, but while it still has a high awareness here in Hong Kong, but um, in terms of merch, it's not really cool anymore. It's more cool to have, you know, something Korean or miffy, something European. It's always been cool to have something foreign anyway. Um, but there was a time when it was really hugely successful. Like, you would, you can exchange them at McDonald's or something, and, and, and they would get sold out. But it's not like that anymore. Um, but, of course, the awareness of McDonald's is still very high. He's still in those public service ads all the time um, that they've been running for years. And they're in, um, you see some of their safety ads in uh, NTR stations. Um, and of course, he is on the um, the Avenue of Stars over at Jim Sartre, which just reopened this month. He has a huge Bronx statue there. So he is definitely like the, still very much the pride of Hong Kong. It's just that um, the film's box office have been dwindling quite a bit over the years. And um, the thing is, Hong Kong is always about new tr- new fads and new trends. So um, you could say people aren't really quite wearing his merch anymore. But of course, his awareness uh, is still very high. And it's that that life, therefore, is uh, quite impressive. Because uh, he, he was uh, featured uh, first as a side character in the McMug comic strips. McMug, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that also features this uh, anthropomorphic pig as a central character, and that goes back as far as 1988. But he has since taken center stage in comics, TVs, uh, and movies. And the adult themes you took away from reading and watching McDull, yeah, apparently. And, and those themes were like social issues, it depicted a changing Hong Kong, its culture, life and death how what it's like being a single parent uh, that that was also apparent in the mcmug series so they they the creators always had a i think for mixing something children's friendly in feel but talking of not necessarily pitch black issues but being real to a to a distinct to a distinct degree to have that desired thread of children's friendly looking style mixed with relevant and grown-up themes and and the movies certainly do that as far uh, at least the free I have seen. 
an online summary uh, gave a fair represent- representation of what to expect from McDull in terms of how to distinguish him visually and what his internal characteristics are. So I, I pull a, a quote from uh, from the internet that describes this uh, thing. So, quote, McDull is a male pig who can be distinguished by a birthmark on his right eye. He has a heart of gold but isn't very smart and is ordinary in every way. Nevertheless, he has many dreams. However, every time he tries, he fails. He is disappointed, but tries again, exploring other dreams. In this way, he creates his own colorful world. He lives his life simply and naturally. He is not perfect, but his attitude towards life, namely of never giving up, makes him a popular character. And I don't think that sounds daft at all. I think, you know, you can build... You can build sort of a momentum and theme upon that. Uh, you, you have to bring talent to the table, of course, to talk of uh, such a mixture of themes in a children's friendly looking package. But uh, from the three movies I've seen, I've always admired that mix, even though they are, can be a bit elusive as movies as well, because they employ such wild styles, widely changing styles and all of that. So. If this is wrong, then just slap me on the wrist, Kevin. So, so his name, as uh, depicted in the story, came from an incident where his uh, mother, Mrs. Mack, witnessed a magical plastic uh, basin. I hope this is correct, because the info on the internet said that uh, a basin is roughly pronounced dull in Cantonese. Yeah, dull, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And she uh, witnessed that flying over uh, her head uh, as she was in um, labor, at least according to the movie. She saw that as a sign from the gods, and so it was that he should be called MacDull. Mrs. Mac, as we said, is a single mother uh, since his father, MacBing, uh, disappeared before he was born. And throughout the episodes in the comics and surely the movies, um, uh, Mrs. Mac pushes MacDull academically. He tries hard, but always fails. Uh, the character and the property, though, took a big leap onto the big screen in 2001 uh, when My Life as McDowell was released and it took in over 15 million Hong Kong dollars at the box office in a year when movies such as Love and a Diet earned over 40 million, Shaolin Soccer 60 million but uh, it was a respectable number nonetheless and the film went on to win Best Original Film Score at the Hong Kong Film Awards, Best Animated Feature at the Taiwan Golden Horse Awards where it was the only nominee so <laughs> 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 fingers crossed fingers crossed yes we won I'm, I'm 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 thinking it was a newly introduced category it's a loose fear i have so maybe they they had a late flash of ideas like is there any animated movie out there one get it and give it hooray we won so um which was good uh, anyway uh, it's a, a prize is a prize kevin so there it is Hmm. Uh, Hong Kong International Film Festival also awarded the film and its director Toyun the Fibreski Prize with the motivation, quote, for being uh, both uh, local and universal, uh, taking off from the aesthetics of cute to deliver a profound statement that captures its time and transcends borders. And because the movie was successful, there's been a fairly steady stream of movies since. Starting with the follow-up, Magdal, Prince de la Ban, released in 2004. The 2006 Lunar New Year movie, Magdal, the Alumni, mixed cartoon segments with live-action uh, scenes featuring the stars of the day, where expectedly, ex- expectedly the Magdal section were better because uh, they were less concerned with being Lunar New Year wacky. You know, the, the cartoon segments really felt like the 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 normal McDowell movie rather than this uh, McDowell light movie if you will 
As, and uh, we've also seen subsequently movies such as Magdal Kung Fu Ding Ding Dong, aka Kung Fu Kindergarten, uh, The Pork of Music, Me and My Mom, and Rise of the Rice Cooker was released. Uh, it's the last one released, and that was in 2016. And uh, because I'm 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 a, I'm fond of like t- tapping into like uh, hey shows your credits shows your credits list boom you've worked on a McDowell movie Kevin so let, let the kind people know which one that was and what did you do I have I actually uh, worked on the English subtitles of the Pork of Music it was I think like the second year or something that I started subtitling and um, I admit that it wasn't my proudest moment it was a very insanely difficult film to subtitle like it's the issue of translating Cantonese to English and make making it make sense at all because it's so Cantonese because yes it's so Cantonese that there are some um some gags that just won't make any sense in English or you have to create brand new gags and I tried I did two drafts on it and eventually because Brian Say the director he is um a very I've been told he's very um he's a perfectionist and he did not enjoy my subtitles so he found someone else to do it I did get credit at the end um I think they may have kept some of my lines I'm not sure and clearly they found Brit to do it because I guess he found Brit's funnier. And um, yeah, the guy changed my American humor into Brit's humor, British humor. But nevertheless, I got credit on a Mado movie. So um, that's all. And I got paid, obviously. So it's all good and fine. But it, it certainly didn't scar me for life because if I did, then I wouldn't be subtitling movies anymore. But, but I mean, but it was a good learning experience. And that was seven years ago. My God, um, I would love the chance to try again. Give me another chance, and I might deliver something that's passable this time. Hopefully, you you mentioned that you know over the years the characters and the character it's remained popular, but the movies have not had as much of a grip on the Hong Kong box office, and then that they're now being produced with the help of mainland investors. So, so does that mean that the recent movies that veer away from the Hong Kong stories of it all, or the makers are still allowed to stay fully true to its? local roots do you know that if you've seen the last movie or two the one that they started doing co-production on is uh the third one no um well depends if you count um the live action one as, as a Mado film i kind of do but i kind of don't um the one where they do the um the kung fu one is it like kung fu ding ding dong or something yeah that is the when they began to do mainland co-productions and of course when you have to do mainland co-productions you have to you have to uh, tend to a to, to the mainland audience, so they started stories about, you know, um, adult going to China. But of course, at the same time, it also paralleled, there's a parallel what ha- was happening in Hong Kong at the time, which is a lot of people um, going up to China to to work, especially in the film industry, um, and of course in other industries as well, textiles, um, essentially manufacturing, things like that. And most of the film took place in the mainland, and it's in itself is about having to go to the mainland to find new ways of surviving so it worked in that sense but then all the other films subsequently had some kind of mainland connection in the plot um and of course they were they weren't being greedy they weren't trying to get all of china they just felt huh um these people in guangdong province guangdong province is one of the most um let's say among all the provinces it has one of the healthiest box office growth mm. so um guangdong Cantonese people, I suppose, Guangdongers. Guangdongers are very avid film goers, uh, film goers, and um, they figured. I think there's like 50 million people in the Guangdong province, the Guangdong region alone. So I figured, as long as we reach those guys, 
they'll make us enough money to survive to make break even. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't been the case for the last couple of films. Not don't even get me started on Hong Kong. Hong Kong has almost um, Hong Kong film audiences almost completely abandoned him because they saw this whole um, this this detachment from Hong Kong and and it's very easy to see the way to pander. The kids don't care, but the adults who really pay up to buy these uh, merchandises, who pay up to go watch the films, who who has the spending power, I think it might have left a sour taste in their mouth. And of course, the Mato films have never been really entertaining. You know what I mean? They're always quite dry for what they are. Yeah. So it, it's hard to get repeat audience when they know that it's going to be say, that that kind of formula. So yeah, it, the, the the popularity in terms of money making making money is 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 has dwindled quite a bit but um also should add actually i did interview alice mack who is the other half of the operation the one who does the illustration so she came up with the design from a doll i interviewed her a couple of years ago um for my other my day job and she did talk about how actually they have quite a small team they still have an office here in hong kong they're off they're still based here and um they have quite a small team in terms of uh, compared to other animated films usually unless they're in production so um i i'm sure they're still making enough money to to uh keep the operation going but no they i know it's a year to pick but they do not have a film this year as far as i know yeah exactly uh, you it will make commercial sense but uh having said that you have the history that's been going on for a few years as you've said with the movies having so to say drifted towards the mainland maybe it's not you you can't just you know automatically uh, have people throw money at you just because you're McDowell and it's the year of the pigs. I mean, maybe it was contemplated, who knows, but maybe it wasn't that easy to uh, to get off the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. If they even attempted, who knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's been a few years. As I said, uh, 2016 was the last uh, last movie, Rise of the Rice Cookers. So, and it seems like they, they spaced them out over a few years, being animated movies. Uh, you got to be in production for a few years, even though it's not it's not Pixar. But it's still animate. It's still animation, so you have to spend some time on it. As a final note, the RTHK also aired five educational episodes featuring McDull and his fellow kindergarten students in 2006, mixing the humor of the series and RTHK's goal of public service, with episodes centering around hygiene and health, food and agriculture, martial arts, and what it is to be a modern Chinese child. So. As Kevin hinted at uh, before, McDowell is very much present outside of the movies as well, uh, and uh, they try and provide some kind of purpose via this character, not just the fiction side of it all, which is uh, which is admirable. Do, do, do you remember offhand these uh, these uh, educational episodes where it's been too long and they weren't frequently flashed before you? No, I I don't I didn't know about Mado before my life Miss Mado. I never saw the because I wasn't growing up. I didn't grow up in Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong, but I moved out when in 1993, and I didn't come back to Hong Kong until the 2000s, at least regularly. I I didn't get in touch back with Hong Kong culture until the internet and uh, the early 2000s when when things were a bit more connected, it's easier to get um, a hold of Hong Kong content. Um, I completely missed the rise of Mado. Um and I didn't move back here um, to live full time until 2007. So right. I'm not sure when when these RTHK shorts came out, but if it did, I I must have the missed year it. Uh, the year before that case. Uh, it was it was it was 06. So yeah, okay. So I'm a, I must have missed it. Yeah, yeah. 
Cool. Well, uh, that's a little bit of history of the uh, franchise, the character, and let's move on to the movie and some bite-sized opinions, uh, first of all. And uh, as for mine, uh, my life as McDowell, uh, it, it is revo- rewarding. It is quite universe- universal, so per definition, it's for all ages. But I think kids would be a bit antsy and get a bit antsy watching this, because this the style of storytelling is very random as it jumps between visual styles has quirky and dry humor and it's not necessarily cute all the time but the varied style is creative it is actually quite charming in spots and compelling and uh, the you know the humble trials of and tribulations of our pig in question is cute and involving and it's also a very short movie so but you realize with this first one that the makers you know really captured uh, a sense of uh, creative freedom and they pursued themes in their own visual way they explored it in their own visual way and no no one was saying to them no you can't do a five minute animatic about a turkey no one said no you know no, mm. no one said no to them it really seems like this is full-on creative freedom for better or worse depending on what you think of the movie but i think overall it's a compelling package even as um as a westerner so uh good good for adults but i think uh you're very youngest anyway i think would uh, scratch their heads a little bit uh watching certain sections so that's my short opinion for now in short uh, what do you think of um, my life as mcdowell kevin the thing is like i said i didn't grow up with mcdowell and i knew about the character i was very um when i watched it i was very uh curious about the character so i went and watched it and knowing nothing about what was going on I loved it. I hadn't seen, but the thing is, the film got a lot of flack. Uh, got a lot of flack in Hong Kong because it recycled a lot of the um, the episodes that were on TV. So um, it actually did get a lot of flack from fans about um, that it was like a bit lazy, um, considering they just sort of chained everything uh, existing sketches together. But I hadn't seen a sketches before, so I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, it was cute. It was adorable, and like you said, it said something about growing up in this city um hong kong kids are actually more pragmatic than you think they're really thrust into um real life quicker than than it's possible yes it's very easy to also shelter kids in hong kong but um once you let them out there um if you don't shelter them um if you don't actively shelter them it's very easy for them to sort of see the realities of life here in hong kong um Mm. you see the wealth the wealth distribution gap is the worst in the world. So you see both, you know, very poor, like the um, the old buildings that that the, the, the whole neighborhood lives in, in Taiko Choi, those buildings. And then next thing you know, you hop 10 minutes away and it's like brand new skyscrapers, right? Mm. Um, so it's, it's very easy to be pragmatic in Hong Kong. And it's very, for kids, I think kids can be very, become very pragmatic in Hong Kong um, because the re- reality is in their face. So the film... I, I've always felt that my life as or Mado, the entire Mado film franchise is the biggest scam ever pulled on kids, because you you have the pigs and it's cute, and then you go in, turns out the films for adults, like it's teaching very adult things or not not adult thing as in like it's not sexual education, the yeah, the birds and the bees or anything or gangsters or or people's arms getting chopped off. No, you leave you leave to have a Johnny Toe. <laughs> McDonald McDonald running from triads. <laughs> I yeah. think that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that could happen. That could happen. Instead, instead, no. They're very um, much about the cruel realities of of life. You know, like you're. Let's face it. It's okay to be a little stupid. It's okay to be completely average. That kind of that to accept your own mediocrity. 
and that to me it's a very adult thing and the more i grow up and the more i i feel that i need i feel like i need that kind of encouragement so it feels like it was um something that brian say was making for himself in a way or he was making i don't know in a, yeah like it's okay to be to be to be not be the best at anything and 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 also the the positive to that is that it's it's hong kong roots are very distinct but it traveled back when I saw it on DVD and it still travels because the themes are universal to a distinct sure. degree too. And whatever we don't get, we still look at with a certain fascination because in, in this very stylized animation form, we still get a very true Hong Kong feel, I can't say, but we get a Hong Kong feel, which is very cool because they, they also you know, embrace the fact that, well, it's real Hong Kong, but it's pigs. And it, it, it and it also has an an aura of fantasy, or obviously the roots of McDull with the flying hat or the flying basin or whatever. It, you know, it's it seems like well, we're making a rooted type of animate animated style with limited two D cell animation set against uh, sweeping sweeping three D backgrounds and sometimes even photographs. It looks like so we're super real, but look, a flying basin. They really mix and match, and I think that that could be dangerous if you don't get that right quite fast. And I think in the, I think initially we do sit up and like, ah, oh, this is it's not the type of animated, it's not an animated movie I've ever seen before, kind of. So you watch with interest based on that, you know. Visually, it's quite low tech, it's true, but that also comes with sort of it's a it's a product of its necessity, right? Because there isn't much budget for Hong Kong animation. I mean, the only one who can afford to make any type of properly budgeted Hong Kong animation is a name named Trey Hark, and he did that. Um, speaking of which, did I did I I don't remember if I bought that Blu-ray for a Chinese ghost story yet. That reminds me. Okay, <laughs> that's, a, that's a mental look to myself. But, but you know what? I, that, uh, I'm 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 not me- meaning to so, sort of put down the cell animation because no, I think no, all, no, not at all. because not because at all. after a while I think the squiggly lines and the limited movements v- versus the more back then uh, high tech environments and high tech free animation. It's a case for well, they don't blend, but I think the feel is right, and I'm immersed in what being what's being communicated here. It even mixes sometimes very well in an odd, odd way to have these characters pasted into 3D. I think when it doesn't work is when, when the director Toyun and employ these massive camera moves that take you all over Hong Kong, and that shows the age of the computer animation. But you know, it's still it's you know it's 18 years ago this, and uh, maybe maybe 19 because presumably they were working on this in. Um, maybe uh, late 2000 who knows but it, it's an odd mix that it has every chance to fail badly but it it always has been charming to me to paste mcdowell into like, like like cut out characters almost into as close to real environments as possible maybe even true maybe there's even true geography here like the roots that the hat travels at the beginning of the movie maybe that's a true actual route they, they go on actual roads in the actual and the left-hand turn is the actual left-hand turn in reality i don't know but it's an odd, odd mixture that works oddly well at the same time if we go back to the to the sort of the themes for a moment you have to understand um i think the generation that brian say and alex mack were born in they were born in the late 60s and they graduated from university in the late 80s i think they were university classmates i think before they got married so if you think about it at the 70s and the 80s were Hong Kong's golden period. They were the period when 
um, if you have smarts, then you become uh, you work in a banking or you become a hugely successful lawyer or something like that. Or if you work hard, if you just work hard, you only have energy, then you go be a, a coolie or you go work in, um, uh, you become a blue collar worker. Either way, the lesson in those decades is that you work hard, you make the money, and you just become rich. And you become rich beyond, not beyond your wildest dreams, but, but you become middle class. That was the aspiration, right? That was the rise of the middle class. And that became the aspiration, especially when they graduated from university, the late 80s. That almost seemed like... Yeah, the, the 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 handover is coming. It was I think it was locked in eighty four, eighty five. Yeah, it was coming, but but it was before um, nineteen eighty nine. It was before June fourth. So everything seemed kind of optimistic at the time, and it was a period when you work hard. So that's the you know if you watch the film, you see that's the um, the values that the mother keeps keeps instilling into Mado. It's that it's that Hong Kong can do spirit. I think this film takes it on in an ironic way. Maybe I think Brian Say and Alice Mack realized that at a certain time, at a certain point in life that maybe um, uh, that isn't enough. What if, you know, or maybe Mato is such a, is to show that, is show people who aren't very smart, who don't become lawyers, who don't become doctors, even when we all become pushed to do it, that it's okay to be dumb. It's not, it's okay to not be the best. Um, you have find success your own way. And I feel like maybe that message has gone a bit out of date for millennials because millennials were facing a much different situation. Like I said, wealth distribution gap in Hong Kong is the worst in the world now. It becomes like working hard doesn't mean anything to millennials anymore. It's not that they don't work hard. It's just that they work hard, but they get less in return than from comparison to Brian Max generation, Alice, uh, Alice Max, uh, Brian say Alice Max generation. I think that's the pessimism. They saw that pessimism coming. And I think that is instilled especially in this first film that kind of uh and maybe less so in the later films because it's about more china chinese um oriented but in that at least that very first film you 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 definitely get this the sense that they saw their city was changing in a way and i think that's where a lot of the attitude comes from is that mix of what they coming from and what they were what they were seeing happening in hong kong it it certainly is communicated uh, that very thing that that very story of McDowell trying but so to say failing but not crashing as a character necessarily uh, it it is felt from someone watching here from from the outside and and we should also state that I think the movie structures itself as the fact that it's the adult McDowell who's telling this story. That uh, because uh, we got constant uh, voiceover narration by not the uh, kid actor who voices McDowell, but from Jen Lam, one of the uh, soft hard kids or whatever that duo with him and Eric Cott were called. Yep. Uh, uh, so uh, the 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 one that's not uh, widely annoying that's uh, Jen Lam. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Eric Cott, but. Uh, you know, you, you can take that story at face value because that that's the story they're telling um, that he's trying but he's not that desperately unhappy in the end that he looks back at you know, the supposed shabby kindergarten as a paradise and that is reflected in the animation which is very lovely and it's about appreciating uh, what you got and, uh, and what you have and that is an example of the animation like coming to life, it's very vibrant and then there's the static style that's very good for delivering the dry dry humor for for instance uh, the scene at the noodle stall that i think pops up in one two or maybe three of the movies where they keep ordering noodles and there's no noodles and you have anthony one rattling off uh, what kind of noodles they don't have 
he does multiple voices in this series, I think. He's a principal. He's the in this one. He's a principal, the Cha Cha Tan guy. Um, he also he's also the the, the bun snatching coach. What well, well, the same? It's the same character designs. So I'm thinking that maybe no, they're different characters. Well, 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 the, well, the characters look it looks the same, but maybe it's slight variation that I didn't. The different characters, yeah, yeah, they, they look the same, but the different characters. Is this is this the way that is that is the um, quintessential Madou universe middle aged man look, but they're different characters. Um, no, I think I think the 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 the, the, the principal might be the Chaza Tank guy and the principal, yeah. But the coach is a different guy, so he voices two different, at least two different characters. Oh, and also, doesn't he also voice the uh, the TV news anchor? Yes, that's right. Because uh, no, it's easy to pick up on when Anthony is on screen because it's uh, it's his very distinctive voice. Exactly, and and I I don't know if that was this sort of mild in joke because Anthony is mixed and his Cantonese is slightly accented but, but I don't know if his Cantonese has gone like away from uh, 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 maybe his Cantonese is like fully no, no one is picking up an accent anymore in his Cantonese maybe. he was um he was doing a because I my, my my father's family has an accent he's doing a Cho Chow accent Cho Chow is a city that's by the coast um on eastern Guangdong province up north near Fujian. Um, a lot of Hong Kong immigrants, actually. So when we talk about immigrants in Hong Kong, we talk about people who came down in the 40s, the 50s, and so on and so forth, in the last couple of decades, um, who escaped the, the communist government after the Civil War. First, you had the Shanghainese. That was the early days. But then later, you start to have um, these people who come down from Guangdong, who swam down from Guangdong. You have Chaozhou, you have Toisan. So these are all. So it's funny because there's so many people in Guangdong that we can't even break it down by the city you're in. Like, oh, you're from Chujiao. So it almost sounds like you're from a different country, but they're just from a different city in the same province. But um, but because there's so many different dialects in Guangdong itself, there's Cantonese, the main language, but there also breaks down to a, a bunch of other dialects within Guangdong. And Chaozhou is one of those dialects. So he has a very um, a lot of a bulk of Hong Kong's immigrants. Um, are from Chou Chow. And that's why Chou Chow cuisine is so big in only in Hong Kong and nowhere else in China because they all come down, came, a lot of people came down to Hong Kong and they established here and there was a huge demand for that cuisine so it sort of get it get sort of assimilated into Hong Kong culture. Um, but yeah, anyone who, anyone who watches the film from Hong Kong knows Cantonese can recognize oh, that was a Chou Chow accent. So he's not from, the idea is that he's not from, he still speaks the, the accent of the home but yeah, that's a sort of a local charm that yeah, you have like a uh, this 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 shady Chiu Chow man, who uh, Chiu Chow uncle as we say, uh, who runs this shady kindergarten who just uh, goes into the classroom and asks the kids for tuition every day. That's just a very funny little local charm thing. And and, and speaking of the humor in general, that is sort of, sort of dry quirky humor at points uh, within all these almost standalone skits that happens i mean is it genuinely a funny movie to you does it get to you or is it too sort of dry and understated to be a laugh out loud movie for you no no it's very funny there's a lot of cantonese wordplay um that's why i say the film is so hard to um to to uh translate um there's also a lot of very much um satire so if you remember like they have these weird activities about like what I don't remember quite specifically, but you know, knowing how to like tango or something, because you might have to do it at a ball when you become a <laughs> when you work at a when you become like a big deal, big shot, and you go to go to a ball, or you have to learn these negotiating or something. You know, it 
those I thought was very funny. And you have to sort of be in that Hong Kong state of mind because, you know, kids start going to school in like three years over in Hong Kong, you know. That's how early you have to. We have something called what we say the starting line. You know, you have to, we have to um, win on the starting line. If you don't do a lot of stuff, you lose on the starting line. That There goes the rest of your life. So <laughs> that is the attitude that Hong Kong kids grew up with. So knowing that state of mind to, to hear what they – doing in the kindergarten is very funny joke about the uh chicken of the paper the paper and the chicken the chicken yeah yeah that to us is very funny that the cantonese wordplay is very funny because it's so stupid like you know remember just a decade ago stephen chow was the biggest comedy star in in all asia especially in hong kong uh so we love that kind of you know it's in a sense it's molly tell humor it's very much molly tell humor done with a bit more fantasy twist it, because it's also not traditional narrative, because you know it jumps all over the place. It, it has a thread, and sometimes it spends five, ten minutes on that thread. But often it jumps around all over the place, and and, and as I said, the pieces feel like individual pieces. Is, is that ever a problem for you that the movie is a little bit all over the place by choice uh, until it finds the bun snatching thread and the training that goes into that and spends some time with that? So is it ever a problem that it's? Uh, uh, sort of indulging in different styles and uh, little skits uh, for half a movie, maybe. It was refreshing at the time for me because, I mean, I hadn't seen any of those, so I had no idea what the famous skits are. So the fact that they were doing all these, all these famous skits, um, these very funny skits, I had no problem with it. Just like I actually have no problem with um, the, the, the live action one, the Mato Kindergarten, is that what it's called? Uh, McDowell the Alumni was the... Um, McDowell the Alumni? Right. Because... Because I've always, and I still insist on calling it this, I call it a Hong, Hong Kong Monty Python movie. You know, people, why would people, why is it that people have no problem watching a Monty Python movie and they watch Mado and they suddenly complain about the, the, the episodic structure of it? So it's not like the first time that um, uh, such a structure had been put on the film. But it allows for the makers to explore a variety of visual styles, which I, I gather is a positive for you that you get to experience so much varied animation. Yeah, but as I was saying earlier, this is why the film caught a lot of flack when it came out, because it was recycling. I, f- I have a feeling those that first half was a lot of recycling right. going on, especially the Maldives one I already heard of. That's definitely from a previous TV skit. The chicken, the, the bun, that's definitely a, a TV skit. And uh, the Cha Cha Tan one, the Mio, that's definitely a TV skit. So quite a few of these were recycled um, and sort of reused um, into the film. Um, so I'm not sure what those viewers were thinking, uh, how they felt, but I, to me, it was all new to me, and um, I didn't mind spending 80 minutes watching all of that. I was delighted at the time. Yeah, yeah, because, because the individual pieces are actually quite fun and creative, and, and it does add up to the whole in terms of themes. You know, they, they so, sort of tie a bow around it uh, quite nicely. I mean, what one is obviously about, what one thread is obviously about the mother's determination and devotion to get McDowell to good places in life. She has relentless energy. And that is, uh, maybe, regardless if this is recycled, that her relentless energy and devotion is uh, demonstrated and visualized as a 2D platformer, like a shoot- shooter. With uh, her, She has a cape on, so she's a superhero. And if this was made today, they would have made an app to tie into the movie. You know, <laughs> the, actual, the, 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 the sort of McDowell, McDowell 2D shooter. And it looks rather marvelous, I think, they, because it's it's not just random sort of flash animation that anyone can do but you you got to have you you have to have this active idea 
because there's so much going on and i think they they put that on screen without it being exhausting either which is uh, a good thing and then they slip into storytelling at the same time too so there's really no sort of it's not elusive as such in terms of the storytelling maybe it's just elusive because it's a bit adult for you know as i said for kids but uh, it really still delighted me the the very shots they set up we get these shots of merely the atm machine display as that changes and i think all of those shots sound simple but it's a rather rather charming that uh, that's where they decided to put the so-called uh so-called camera that's creativity to me and uh, maybe they put you know maybe they didn't know or think that that they have another movie uh, or will be blessed with another movie so maybe just put everything in there put all our ideas in there but thankfully after all was said and done it wasn't uh, exhaustive and uh, you know trippy and abstract and all that yeah the problem is when they did the sequel and they realized they had to come up with an entire i'm not sure again i i wasn't a I didn't watch the original, so I don't know if any gags were, were recycled in the second one, but that film went full-on art house, if you remember correctly. <laughs> if I remember correctly. It required more focus, the, the story of the yeah. the father and the, symboli- uh, the symbolism and all of that. So, But, but hey, we got Andy Lau into the franchise, so no complaints whatsoever. Because <laughs> uh, he uh, voiced uh, the father of McDowell, if my memory is, uh, memory is correct. So... Uh, you know, as the movie goes along and all of that, it's nice to see the character of McDull being very verbal and animated and determined himself. Now that he's uh, on a path of uh, training, being inspired by the actual uh, real-life Olympian that won the gold medal. The sport was windsurfing. Windsurfing. Yeah. I did look yeah, it up it to was... make sure that they were referencing something, someone real, uh, and they were indeed uh, referencing. It is real. So, uh, so someone real. And uh, but but McDowell's sport that he's uh, handed is obviously not uh, it's not windsurfing, but uh, that uh, bun snatching that seems like based on the fact that they show some kind of archival footage that gives me the impression that it's based on something, but I don't know if it's based on one hundred percent actual truth. Oh, it's real. It's real. Yeah, because every um, year around Buddha's birthday, um, there's this huge festival on Chunchao, which is an island off. Of, uh, in fact, I think it's the most populous outlying li- island in Hong Kong. Um, so whereas Chan Fat is on Lama, but Chen Chao was the much bigger one, and a lot more people grew up lived there. Um, and yeah, it's famous because every year Buddha's birth uh, Buddha's birthday, they have this huge festival, and it always ends that night with the huge bun snatching contest. But of course, as the film says, it became too dangerous because you know you don't want to pop, you don't want to fall off that mountain so it, it looked like the beginning of dragon lord if you remember that a tower that climbed in <laughs> dragon lord and where all the stuntmen fell off it and all of that so it reminded don't be me surprised of that if that's yeah don't be surprised where that's where the, the idea comes from it's a real thing right um it's it's a real um contest i think they reinstated a few years ago um of course they, they limited the number of participants and i think they all had to wear safety harness and stuff but for a long <laughs> time it was i know i know <laughs> <laughs> no, I know some little Jackie Chan spirit, right? But yeah, it, it's a it's a real it's a it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah, that's why it's so funny because it's a real thing. It maintains a good focus, especially in the second half, and it really starts to bring forth the themes that you know, even if you try and fail and realize not everything is a fairy tale, not everything works out. It's so it's it's somewhat warm though. It's not cynical. Uh, it's 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 a huge thing for McDowell to have almost achieved something and that's infectious that uh, makes us uh, involved 
in his story. Uh, we're not uh, sitting there looking looking at him and laughing at him being pathetic or anything. I mean, the only pathetic moment is, and maybe this is a Cantonese wordplay, but uh, the only pathetic moment is when he's asked to shoot a football and he starts peeing instead. And I was like, come on, McDowell, come on. But maybe maybe that's a wordplay hidden in there. I wouldn't know. But uh, around the end point, and this is sort of my final note, I realized that as they were communicating the themes and it switches into live action for a little bit, the narration, that very matter-of-fact narration, which is very warm, I think it delivers it well, Jan Lam, it becomes uh, part of that atmosphere. And it became oddly moving to me, the way he... Uh, describes uh, what what determination McDowell has come to at the end of the movie. And they also play around with the fact that, uh, they, you know, they rewind the film and then make a new determination instead about <laughs> what they learned. And I, I found it oddly moving by the end. That, um, and that's why I think they tied the bow really well and uh, opened up for more stories. Now, I haven't, I haven't re-watched McDowell, Prince Talaban. I do remember liking it, but I do remember working. I had to work for it a little bit more. You know, it was a, a larger chunk to to work for. You know, so uh, but uh, it's going to be f- fun to revisit that at uh, at one point. I can I can go into a little bit about why Jan Lam was chosen because Jan Lam, um, after Soft Hard, he remained as a as a as a radio personality. So his voice is already super well well known in Hong Kong. I think he was. Hosting uh, this is when people still listen to radio, all right. Back when we listened to our entertainment programs, kids, <laughs> it was not a yeah. podcast, kids. This was radio. Yeah, there was no podcast back in the day. Um, uh, that's why I'm I'm confused why Hong Kong podcasts didn't take off in Hong Kong because Hong Kong radio is such a big part of life. Um, here, it was definitely huge. Then it's still very big now because you know, remember you have all these taxi drivers out there who didn't listen to something. Uh, radio is still has a huge um huge 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 presence here in uh, in hong kong and of course if you are the host of the most popular show and you're known for your voice that's jan lamb he was on every, on radio every morning making jokes and and he was also a writer um a script writer who wrote um radio plays for a station he also hosted uh did hosting work so his 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 um talent for monologues like the one in Mato, was already very well established at the time so that's why he was chosen, and that's why he was such a soothing voice for the Hong Kong audience to hear when he delivers that kind of lesson. What was, was the dynamic between him and Eric Cott as the soft hard kids that he was the sort of calm one, or he was as wild as Eric was as, when they performed as soft hard kids? Because I've only seen them do that uh, musical number in City Hunter, and that's all the experience yeah. I have of them together. Otherwise, it seems like one is... Uh, the wild man, Eric, and Jan can, he, he feels calmer, he looks calmer. When he's acted without Eric, he seems calmer anyway. Eric is the is the wild one, but Jan is the smart-ass one. Um, he's the one, he's like the nerd, he's a geek, um, in a way. He's like the unlovable geek, or the lovable geek, in a way, the guy that would never get girls. Um, but of course, he ended up marrying a very, very beautiful singer, by the way. Yeah, so he's the witty one. He's the, he's the smart one. Let's just say he's the... He's the writer. He is the literature guy, or he's the literary one, or he's the smart one. That's why he's still on the radio today. He's still has been doing this for well thirty years now, right? He's the smart ass. He's the clever one, but he's also the geek. But he's the one that has depth. Whereas um, Eric is the one that brings the energy, but he's the one that has depth. So if that makes any sense, sure, sure. And that's how you 
structure of a sort, uh, sort of classical duos throughout uh, uh, you know mm-hmm. throughout time and globally and all of that so uh, that's very cool uh, we didn't mention it but we, we really should the voice of uh, McDowell's mother is Sandra M which you know you couldn't ask for a uh, it's it's a get, it's a get I think because uh, Sandra is an accomplished comedian and also super accomplished dramatic actor so I, I can only base it on what I hear but I think having her voice for the mother of McDowell is is just great. I mean, there's no complaints whatsoever. It's not it's not a role that demands like uh, she's gonna have dramatic monologues now. But she's she's into it clearly, and she's uh, she does a bang up job. And there's nothing to complain about that. I I just like the casting of this was very um you know because we recognize these actors, and it doesn't seem that they phoned it in necessarily neither Anthony or Sandra because it, I, I, I just get the feeling that they recognize what the material was about and how uh, you know the contrast between the wild and the adult theme adult themes what that's about and that they uh, took that seriously because uh, when when there is material for these actors I, I know they put forth effort when there's no material for these actors they work anyway but there's no effort you know and Anthony is the <laughs> first one to say that that was a money movie and that was the movie I did because I wanted to. <laughs> you know. Any any um, spontaneous notes on Sandra? Because you you do understand Cantonese uh, in terms of her performance. Um, anything uh, stood out, or it was a like a perfectly serviceable voice performance for the mother. Well, it was a very unsandra performance at the time because I think in the late night, he, she was a comic relief character, right? She was always a comic relief character. She was the the quote unquote ugly woman, uh, and she had a very wild. Um, reputation you know her she was again she was also on radio and she was no uh, she was very famous for having like this ah, that kind of laugh you know what i mean like she was the riotous one so but yet playing with those mother sort of showed a different side she was motherly it was lovely um it it, it really uh, i think solidify her career as a, as a voiceover actor i mean she did voiceover work before but I think that one, this this one, Mato will always be her most famous um, voiceover work. It was, um, I wouldn't say it was career changing, but it it brought her to a new. Um, she never thought that she would become a popular with kids, right? But then this one really made her popular with kids. It really broke out sort of a new new career for her. Um, and and it, it, I think the impact, the impact can't really be felt now because now she's mainly working in the mainland along with Peter Chan, but. Yeah, I mean that that was the first time I heard her as a motherly character, and it was very, um, very refreshing, and uh, it, it's still very touching to this day. Actually, I think she's my favorite voice in that whole whole franchise. Very much so, and uh, I I came at Hong Kong cinema experiencing Sandra in reverse because I saw I saw her dramatic work first, like uh, Juliet in Love and movies like that, and then I you know Inspector West Scott. Oh. And then more Inspector Westcott, and then you know a variety of movies where she's called ugly. Okay, that was her role for for ten fifteen years, and then she got Juliet in Love, and then you know if you to to you all, <laughs> I can do something else, and that was lovely because I I never thought those roles were suited for her. It was kind of unfair to her because she wasn't ugly. It was always a stretch when they call her the ugly one out of the out of the bunch. So, so I always had great affection for Sandra based on the fact that I saw the dramatic work first and then Golden Chicken movies and things like that. So, always good. Uh, so that's the end of my notes. Anything else you want to share about my life as McDonald? Yeah, I feel like we've, we've devoted 
I think we actually talk more about the film than actually the length of the film. Maybe so. It, it's a 70-minute film, short so film. We, we did at least uh, 45, 50 minutes, who knows. But uh, as for availability, it is available. You, It had an early 2000s DVD release from Universe, but that was thankfully reissued and remastered and is available on um, Region All Blu-ray in Hong Kong, according to uh, specs. So you should be able to play it in your Blu-ray player. So there's... Uh, no better time, I guess, to go get it. It's out there and it looks um, splendid. And uh, that's uh, what I need to do eventually. I need to uh, to upgrade it. But uh, for this show, I simply do. There's no laser disc of it, so obviously I can't uh, go backwards. I need to go forwards, which is uh, which pains me, Kevin, that I need to go forwards. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> stuck with my obsolete media. No, no. Uh, I, well, I can go one step backwards, and that is to get a VCD, but, but I won't. So... Yeah, but uh, that's uh, my life as McDowell for you. We're going to take a promo break, listen to a promo from one of our friends in the podcasting community, and after that we're going to discuss a short movie, which is Free Going Home from director Peter Chan, which was part of the free feature movie with uh, free uh, horror stories in one. And this was the last one from Hong Kong, uh, 50-minute experience or so. And uh, we'll be back after a break to review it. GGTMC Live! For you, fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. Welcome back in the second uh, movie up for review in this episode is a short movie, uh, but it runs 15 minutes or so, so uh, it's a sort of a full experience, but it's called, it's called Going Home, and it was part of the horror anthology Free, released in 2002, and plot from my old review of the film, uh, CID Officer Chan, played by Eric Tsang, and his son Chern, played by Lee Tingfong, moves into an apartment complex that is set to be torn down in a month. All tenants have gone except Mr. Yu, played by Leon Lai, and his wife Hai Er, played by Eugenia Yuan. Uh, the super explains to Chan that the wife is paralyzed from the waist down, but the CID officer Chan is going to discover another truth. While desperately searching for his son, he enters Yu's apartment and finds the wife dead in the bathtub. From here on starts a three-day ordeal for Chan as he's kidnapped and finds out the real truth about Yu's life and wife. Because it turns out he is treating her with Chinese medicine and she's set to revive in three days, according to according to Mr. Yu. So, this is a short film from director Peter Chan. For, uh, the director of Comrades, Almost a Love Story, The Warlords, Perhaps Love and so forth. And it was the last segment in the anthology film Free, released in 2002. There also featured the shorts The Wheel by Thai director Non Si Nimibutter, sorry for the mispronunciation, and South Korea's Kim Ji Woon of A Tale of Two Sisters fame gave us memories. And I caught this back in the day because I had an interest in Peter Chan and the project sounded cool and all of that. And uh, I knew vaguely about Kim Ji Woon, probably after having seen A Tale of Two Sisters or... Uh, knew of the name because the Korean cinema new wave directors they were names uh, as you uh, as you probably know as well Kevin so did, did you catch this catch this when it was sort of hot or free was uh, a late experience for you 
I watched it uh, when it first came out on DVD, of course, uh, in the States, I think, 2002, I was still in the States. And that was the period when I felt, well, you, you know, Peter Chan's always been a very commercial director, even from his uh, uh, 90s output. And that was um, a period when he felt that um, Hong Kong Cinema was on the, on the, on the, in dumps. And his um, new initiative was to do uh, pan Asian films. He thought pan Asian cinema had a had a had a had a chance. Korean cinema wasn't quite there yet. It wasn't hitting the sort of big commercial marks that say it does now. But he was very much trying to catch on to this whole pan Asian thing. And of course, his commercial mind is that horror was the thing that would, was sold the best, especially uh, to overseas. Uh, in terms of foreign sales, so he did uh, what any commercial director would do, someone who bucked the trend, and he did a horror thing. Yeah, because he, his company is one of the companies behind it. It, it, it is a co-production. It's, applause. It, it's Applause, yeah. it's CG Entertainment, and whatever the Thai company was uh, called. Uh, so it, it's a it's a very much shared shared venture. Do, do you remember offhand uh, if uh, The Wheel and Memories made any impressions on you? And, and in case of Memories and Kim Ji-woon, were you aware of um, that he had done uh, Tale of Two Sisters or even going back to uh, The Quiet Family, The Foul King, those kind of movies? Were you aware of Kim as the, the, the director of those? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I caught on to Korean cinema quite early when it reached Hong Kong uh, with um, Christmas in August well, it became a huge sort of art house hit in Hong Kong and then yeah Shiri so ever since then I was started watching Korean films and I, I had seen The Foul King and Tale of Two Sisters by then already so I knew um, what it was going in and of course I knew about the Thai director because I think he had made um, uh, um, another hit that was um, he he made a movie called Jandara, uh, I believe. Jandara was just produced by Peter Chan, I think Peter Chan's company. He made he made something else to it that he was famous for. For I made that research when we actually talked of memories on another episode of Korean cinema, but uh, I've forgotten about that. Uh, the the wheel was my least favorite out of these three. Then the memories was uh, better. It's not another a tale of two sisters, but but it has some good stuff. But I always thought that Hong Kong out of these three came out um, came out the strongest uh, for my money's worth anyway. To be honest, I think I skipped straight to straight to going home at that time. I think I didn't watch the other two, and I skipped straight because that was the one I really wanted to see, and I skipped straight to that. And I think even if I did watch those other two, I don't remember a single thing about those. Yeah, memories is it has some very cool atmosphere, but. Um... It feels like a short movie concept, so it's not really designed to linger with you like A Tale of Two Sisters did. But but there are some cool visual cues uh, in there and some cool, like, blarks, if you will, like, startles. And the wheel feels, it's very Thai. It, it, you know, the story is rooted in Thai, you know, beliefs and uh, the, the story seems very manufactured out of uh, thai, Thailand. And maybe that's why I couldn't connect to it, but it really flew over my head or entered me and then exited me right away so it really was the weaker one but uh, uh, because I, I, I did rewatch it quite recently and it still was the weaker weaker one it was certainly popular enough free to spawn a second go at an anthology film uh, under the banner free and then it was released two years later as free extremes that had short movies by even bigger hitters uh, Takashi Miike out of Japan he made a movie called Box Park Chan-wook of old boy fame made Cut and perhaps I didn't expect this, Kevin. The man with the 1997 handover movies, Fruit Chan, gave us the now classic dumplings. I mean, he had ventured out of that. He'd made Hollywood Hong Kong, and, but it wasn't on the cards that Fruit Chan is going the places dumplings went. 
and it was delightful mm. that that happened but i i couldn't see that coming and i was delighted when i saw it coming <laughs> Well, when I saw, when you think about it, if you look back at his films, he always did a bit of body horror. Um, for example, in The Longest Summer, there was a particularly uh, violent ending to a very Taxi Driver-esque ending of uh, The Longest Summer. You had some very gross-out moments and little churns, so... With the tampon, with the tampon and shit, you're thinking of that. Yeah, and if you see, <laughs> and if you see his newest film, Three Husbands, there are some quite squirmy, squirm-worthy moments as well. Fu Chen has definitely been a provocateur in terms of body horror uh, or doing weird things with the human body. Uh, in, in Hollywood, uns- Hong Kong, someone got uh, another person's arm reattached to him. And and there was yeah. like two different tattoos that now didn't match yeah. up. Therefore, so... And even in um, Made in Hong Kong, someone gets his arm chopped off in uh, in the toilet, remember? Right. So, uh, yeah, Fu, Fu Chen is it's always a um, bit of a uh, burst of violence and body horror and things like that. And I think it just uh, became a... Uh, a big thing in 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 um in free. We come back a little bit later about the comparison between the Peter Chan segment and the Fu Chan segment. I of course I appreciate the, I like the Fu Chan segment more, but we'll talk about the reasons a little bit a little bit. I think. Uh, Going home was an award winner in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Even though even though it was a short movie, they still uh, got it onto uh, the big awards circuit. So I don't know. If it, do you know that that? could have represented a difficulty that it was a short movie or because it's peter chan and applause they could argue that well we're, we're as good as a feature movie so we should be nominated well no that's why there was an extended version now and that one just barely reached over 60 oh, minutes yeah, because there was not many minutes added <laughs> you're right <Yeah. laughs> so they added a few minutes and make it over 60 minutes and then it became a feature film um and they were keen to nominate a Peter Chan film, so so that's the the way the dice rolled. Okay, cool. And it um, it uh, it was awarded. Uh, one award went to actress Eugenia Yuan, uh, which is Cheng Pei Pei's daughter, in uh, the new best uh, in the best new artist category. She played the dead wife, but she she, she has dialogue. But uh, obviously, when she's still and all of that, that's not a puppet. That's her. And she even did, she even does nudity, as far as I can see. That's her. Uh, the movie received nominations in all major categories, however, but it was a bit hard to beat some other movies that year, Kevin. Uh, Infernal Affairs was nominated that year, so <laughs> Going Home had a chance to be nominated. It got a Best New Artist award, but uh, Infernal Affairs was, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall in terms of who was going to get the big big ones that year. Uh, the Taiwan Golden Horse Awards gave a picture of few nominations and two awards. Best Cinematography to Madman Christopher Doyle and Best Actor going to Lo and behold, Leon Lai. I didn't see that, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't predict that necessarily, that Leon Lai would walk away as a best actor at one point in his career. Remember, Aaron Kwok won two years in a row at Gordon Horse, so so stranger things have happened. No, 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 no. Aaron is a sacred, <laughs> holy sacred <laughs> uh, topic here on the show, so I, I, I can't... Uh, I can't uh, Stand with you in terms of uh, bashing Aaron now. Just kidding. Uh, he, he's an easy target, Leon. Uh, and uh, but we, we I, I think we can get back to a little bit why his uh, performance might have been award worthy, depending on uh, what you and I think respectively. But let, let's get on to some short opinions first of all. And in terms of my opinion of going home, I I really like it. I think uh, it's not connected to horror necessarily, and I'm thankful for that. It really gets it right in terms of direction, story, cinematography, and the fact that Leon Lai shows an ability to disappear in this role. 
and that's a good thing. He's not lacking in charisma, and that's why he disappears. No, he disappears in the role because it's an engaging role. It's uh, believable for this hour because his success rate was not high compared to the other heavenly kings in my eyes. So um, because the charisma was rather bland, but Peter Chan was really spot on again when using Leon. He had a success rate doing so before with comrades almost a love story and and uh, really going home for me is very haunting and heartbreaking but it's not it doesn't feel like a horror movie it uh, has supernatural elements that you can even argue is a little bit shoehorned in but i i think overall you really hit it out of the park for this one and it is easily the best out of these three out of three so uh in, in short um what is your opinion of uh, going home I have to remember it based on the the career tra- trajectory that Peter Chan was going. He had just done a Hollywood film that flopped, Love Letter, and he was sort of back in Hong Kong. He was at the top of his game at the time. Everyone was sort of regarded him as sort of almost like a god because he had made it to Hollywood um, and, and made a film that wasn't an action film, unlike um, John Woo or unlike Trey Hark. So he came back and he did this film, and he did Applause Pictures, which is a big pan-Asian thing. I think he had fun doing it in a way um, to do a Hong Kong film again. And it was very much missed because he hadn't made a Hong Kong film in about uh, four years, five years. Yeah, the last one was Age of Miracles. And I didn't find that to be the best of Peter Chan necessarily, especially not after Comrades. It was so great. So it was his return and he sort of became a new Peter Chan. And But what I don't like about it now and I still don't like about it and I think now even like less knowing his personality or his 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 um, his uh, what's the word um, career choices is that he was so desperate to buck the trend to make this big horror thing because he wanted to to make it a, a commercial thing that he added these unnecessary horror touches. I think the story in itself is quite spooky. Mm hmm. Um, but it's not maybe perhaps it wasn't as horror much horror as he wanted to so he added these very unnecessary horror touches in the beginning the first 10 minutes of the film and I still hate it now Um, I didn't like it then I still don't like it now but I thought most the second half once the story settles into that 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 rhythm uh the main story i felt it was quite uh very strong even though it's very much a uh, what we call like a close single set chamber play type of deal is is still a, a very strong that part is still very strong um but what i still hate now is that to, to meet joe blackshot let's face it, it's not i don't want to spoil it, but it's to meet joe blackshot if you know what i mean sure um it and they repeat it twice and i'm just like that was a terrible decision i mean even 2002 that special that that bit of special effect was very very really really terrible um but i actually hadn't seen it in since i first watched it um so i'm watching it this time for the first time in about 16 years and i was surprised at how many images still remain in my mind so um obviously there's some it must have made a uh, left uh, some kind of effect on me i i i think it's a very strong film i i agree and uh, if we talk a little bit about leon first the leon lie i mean i i'm not trying to be immature about it but he he was one of many Hong Kong cinema profiles that you know slipped into movies because he was a singer or because that was the nature of the game. Singers were in movies, and some singers really elevated their craft the the more they were in movies uh, and uh, became accomplished actors. But 
some slipped into sort of anonymous presences and leon lai unfortunately was one of those actors he he wasn't the, this draw for me or oh, leon lai is in a movie you know andy lau is in a movie that gets me pumped but not leon lai but something must have clicked kevin when he worked with peter because Peter clearly, you know, affection for each other, or Peter clearly knew how to sort of use Leon. Because I haven't seen Comrades in a long, long while, but it was still a great movie, and I can't for I can't remember any bad memory of Leon's acting in that one. So, uh, do you think there's any truth to that that Peter Chan must have figured out how to sort of mold Leon into a more bearable movie actor? Oh, certainly. I think Peter Chan is a very talented director, sure, um, and I think he knows how to how to find the right way to exploit his actors. And I don't mean exploit as in uh, a negative word. I think exploit as in to take advantage of what each actor offers. So in Comrades Almost a Love Story, that role almost um, almost fits Leon's um, talents perfectly. He had to play sort of this dumbfounded fish out of water in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, Beijinger in Hong Kong, and um, first because Leon is from Beijing, so he naturally um, uh, relates to that story because he also came down from Hong Kong, from Beijing, and and found a career. He also very much uh, felt realized that Leon is pl- is good at playing that fish out of water, bit of dumb, kind of dumb, um, but still look very cool, uh, uh, leading man type of deal. So he found the, the right what Leon had as an actor, and I think he used it to his advantage the reunion here and I, I i certainly have more notes on it but the reunion here really is why the movie comes away being affecting because he he still has a grasp of how to to mold this character using leon lai and make him disappear into the role uh, you know he's not called leon for once so that helps because in so many of these heavenly king movies especially andy lau movies character's name is andy great great creativity makers name it after the actor so that works and uh, nobody really disappears into this and i kind of agree it's a short movie so you get past these sections but the loud blargy sections at sections at the beginning of the movie where everything is mysterious and everything is super loud and uh, christopher Doyle's cinematography suggests that everything is horrible and super scary that um, clashes i think with the calmer more stage play like drama that we're going to see i would have preferred it to be more quiet all throughout but thankfully we get past these sections of loud music and uh, and experimental uh, cinematography and then when we settle into the really it looks like a standing set partly but still they, they set decorate the crap out of this movie and <laughs> really really gets us sort of creeped out a little bit because there's minor artifacts left by other tenants you know old photographs everything's very gray and green and even though leon lai's apartment that we then uh, spend some time in looks like typical torture horror a uh, torture horror stage with the tiles and the uh, you know the yellow the curtain and all of that they they still really when they settle on that kevin they start to play Play, play the movie much better because they, they're not trying to show off by that point they, they, Chan has reeled in himself I suppose and Christopher Doyle is just shooting and not being a sort of experimental camera madman by that point you know yeah I'm, I'm not sure if if the in, inners of the apartment was shot at that location but 
Um, I think getting the right location was really winning 50% of the battle, and Peter Chan managed to use the... Um, the building in Central is the old police uh, married... Um, married police had um, dorms, I think, dorm building. Uh, this giant building, but it was abandoned. It had been abandoned for years at that point. And yeah, and full time killer, if you remember, had a huge battle shot there. Don't re- don't remind me of negative things. I'm in a good mood, so don't oh, remind me of negative. That was, good, <laughs> that was actually a good. That was actually a good scene in that film. Right. On. Okay. Um, that 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 gunfight. But now it's been rebuilt, and now it's this new complex. I think the actual core, the the the, the actual shell of the building is still there, but now it's called PMQ. It's a it's a complex um, with a lot of stores by local artisans and some overpriced restaurants and uh, some a lot of weekend activities. So now it's a family friendly place, of course. It certainly doesn't look like it, and uh, all the better for this this movie and its uh, and its hues. Obviously, you can manufacture that in color timing and such, but the the place really seems. Uh, well suited for uh, you know for for the production designer costume designer and cinematographer in this case to just uh, play but without showing off like the sh- show off his stuff is done then we get into you know Eric Tsang's story with him trying to raise his son this is more in the extended version but he's he's harsh on his son in a way where he wants to he, he needs to teach him lessons quite quickly but he's not uh, he's not a terrible father it's just like he he doesn't want to teach him these lessons ten times. He wants to teach him these lessons at maximum two times, and then he has to have it in his system. And then, you know, he needs to learn to eat properly. He needs to learn to go to the toilet without being scared. And I don't want to talk about that after this second lesson mm-hmm. because we have stuff to do. <laughs> so he's and, and uh, but Eric is, uh, you know, if anyone came to life under Peter Chan's direction, it was certainly Eric, because, um, you know, going back to Ellen and Eric between Hello and Goodbye, which is a good movie, but I have problems with it. Uh, Those problems are spelled Ellen Tam, because Alan is Alan, and that's not a good thing always. But Eric is, uh, you know, exemplary in that one, and then Comrade's almost a love story, and by this point, Eric was, you know, he could shed his comedic persona so quickly and be so naturally in the environment and you can buy the fact that he's uh he's a father with this attitude and not this silly you you know you don't see the silly comedian as i said at least i don't because you get enough exposure i think kevin in movies uh you know i I know he's on tv or at least was on tv a lot but you get enough exposure in movies where you realize that one person does a similar thing and a lot and when eric switched to being a dramatic performer it was uh, the most natural thing in the world. And I think that shows up in reactions here and his quiet reactions, even seeing Leon live for the first time. I think it's, I think it's an example of there might be something there, there might not be something there. So uh, I'm just going to give him a look and then we'll get on with it. And of course, remember that Eric Zung and Peter Cham were very, very close collaborators, uh, not just as director and actor, but uh, Eric Zung was also one of the co-founders of UFO, United Filmmakers Organization, which Peter Chan is also part of. And I think they very much revolutionary, uh, revolutionary, revolutionized, sorry, revolutionized um, um, what Hong Kong cinema could be. They sort of stepped, follow in the footsteps of DMB in the 80s, was, and they made very much um, these films for the middle class, but with very um, Western filmmaking styles that are much more familiar with say western films um and he brought that to hong kong and and ufo was very much 
integral part of 90s Hong Kong filmmaking and um, the fact that they are also close collaborators behind the scenes. And of course, Peter Chan was also one of the people who, who made Eric Zhang an award-winning dramatic actor uh, with his film. So yeah, so it's very important. That, that harsh voice, that uh, hoarse voice could work in drama as it turned out. And uh, it was not a tough sell at all. If we turn to Leon here, because the choice is to underplay this, you know, despite him kidnapping the Eric Sun character, he's not going all out psycho and loud on us. And even when he's rattled internally, especially when Eric Sun's character knows what buttons to push, he, Leon isn't directed uh, where he starts to shout and then run around the apartment and like slapping his head like no 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 but rather he's uh he's keeping it more internalized and really is not prepared for having to deal with this kidnapping scheme at one point eric sang almost gets loose and leon lai knocks him out again and you can see leon lai almost being in shock himself like shit i have to do it again <laughs> i got i've got other stuff to do here <laughs> this was not supposed to happen and we, we, which is sort of fun, but in general, do, do you think uh, Peter is using Leon well once again? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, like like I said earlier, I think Peter Chan knows how to find what a certain actor is good at and shape the character according to that. And he's a perfectionist. He's known to be a perfectionist um, in terms of script, directing, everything. So he 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 knows how to get a performance of Leon and out of uh, and using that dynamic and in a way doesn't and it's almost intentional the way that they use Leon and Eric who were also um, quite good together in comrades right I think they shared um, I don't remember they shared a single scene actually now that you mentioned it you would think a scene or two but ma- mainly Eric scene were scenes were with Maggie Eric was with Maggie yeah exactly. But uh, yeah, there is that kind of reunion or the fact that it never met in that film is very interesting. And of course, it's also interesting that he would bring those two um, into and have them go opposite each other. Um, and that was, I think, was in somewhat an in, 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 intentional choice. And I like that Peter Chan sort of limited himself to just these two characters playing off each other. Or, uh, of course, with Eugenia Yuan being there and your general you with leon and then leon with eric and the way that these dynamic this character dynamic playoff in this very shut off space he had control total control of of the the set in a way and um yeah it, it's it's a very um very much skillful but you don't realize the skill until you really really think deep about what it takes or what it took to put that together yeah, there's no show-off moment acting-wise uh, here either, which is very good. Yes, there are strong hints of there, there, there seems to be madness there or mental issues, but Leon is not overacting, you know, there's no prancing about the apartment, as I said. And really, even when Eric Sang's character pushes his buttons as he sits uh, after having been fed in the bathtub, which is uh, not what would happen in a Hollywood movie, uh, actually eating on screen, but uh, here Leon actually feeds Eric Sang for <laughs> who knows how many takes uh, as he sits there tied up in the bathtub but uh, Eric is sitting you know with his hands behind his head and he, he sort of looks smug because he knows where where I can push to get a reaction out of Leon and I, I'm so glad that uh, that moment is earned when he smashes the glass and pours out the beer in anger because uh, Eric got to him I'm so glad that that moment works and I'm so happy for Leon that that is a genuine acting moment that adds 
to the character that we have seen otherwise be very methodical he goes about his business and uh, takes care of his wife makes the medicine cuts her hair and treats her lovely and talks to her and uh, to to see that little uh, burst is so earned and it doesn't need to be more than this wide-eyed burst oh yeah i mean i haven't i haven't seen the film for so long i've forgotten how well made that moment was that was such an amazing scene the way especially how it pays off with like you said leon smashing glass and pouring the beer i mean it was i think that was the strongest scene in the film actually i've forgotten how strong it was until i now we watched it and 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 of course the theme is how how deep how deep is your love literally and uh, we won't reveal what happens in the movie but sympathies change you know what i mean you don't view Leon Lai's character as uh, this madman necessarily uh, the longer the movie runs and there, there is an intriguing involvement of the story involving him and uh, Eugenia who uh, you know she, she earns her award of course in the videotaped uh, dialogue monologue towards the end but uh, she has to be an integral part during those very brief dialogue stretches and as she is simply lying there obviously very uh, exposed to because she, um, she does nudity here I- I- images are creepy just because he's cutting her hair in the bathtub and obviously the hair is in the bathtub and the, the, the bathroom looks grimy and green and gray ah. <laughs> so but but the longer this movie runs you don't think of this as being part of a horror anthology i think that's the balance and the creative freedom i guess peter gave himself and uh it shows up more here versus memories and the wheel that uh, he wasn't tied to desperately tied to or tie himself to i gotta be horror after those initial moments that that we hinted at with uh, christopher doyle and peter chan going all out audiovisual nuts on us because they did this movie needs to have emotional hooks in you and that it gets without being insecure about it it doesn't overplay the drama it's not melodramatic and no spoilers even when he needs to explain what went down that doesn't feel clumsily sort of shoehorned in because i think you need to explain in some shape or form and i was very satisfied by the end in terms of the explanations we did get uh there are actually um slightly different resolutions in the so to say short movie cut versus the slightly extended one but uh, that would require spoilers i want uh, i want to uh, spoil it. it it doesn't involve uh, the leon lai character but uh, another character gets a, a longer send-off if you will i think you gotta stop your notes there because i i don't want to spoil anything else other than it, it really is a fine return and uh, free as a project if you look at the other movies uh, in free extremes and especially the hong kong one again not necessarily tied to being horror because dumplings worked on other levels uh, too uh, takashimiki's box was um, strange uh, i if you rewatch that at some point kevin uh, good luck uh, untangling it because it's weird but it's oddly watchable just because it's uh, I, I, I don't know i don't know <laughs> i simply do not know mm. uh, park chan wook's cut i think is the weaker one for for someone as masterful as park chan wook uh, cut was um, a case of uh, his mix of comedy and uh, graphic violence didn't really gel in, in that one but um, it, it, it's a little hiccup in an otherwise almost impeccable career so that's okay um, but yeah we uh, I, I sort of emotionally uh, crashed with the characters towards the end of three and um, I was happy that the movie took me on that journey rather than 
creeping me out because the free going home didn't need to creep me out as a matter of fact uh, it, it needed to be sort of haunting emotionally and um, I thought it was and uh, Leon uh, deserved that award uh, and uh, w- went on to you know a, a couple of uh, signature roles here and there Moonlight in Tokyo I thought was fun it uh, was a nice role for him also a movie that uh, changes tack towards the end uh, quite tragically and I thought it was good in Infernal Affairs 3. I enjoyed his sort of cold cold character in Infernal Affairs 3 and what what he ultimately had to do with the uh, with the sort of final story tally of uh, Infernal Affairs 3. So I enjoyed him in that one. Uh, so I'm going to end my notes there. I, I recommend going home and uh, go watch it before Memories and uh, The Wheel. It's okay. They are not connected as such. So um, in most versions, this would be placed last. So just skip ahead. Uh, so that's the end of my note. Uh, what else do you want to say, if anything, about going home? Um, what I was saying about how I'm going to compare going home and dumplings. Mm. What I did like about dumplings. I mean, again, I haven't seen dumplings in about a good decade at least. Um, but I remember something that Fu Chen didn't bother doing, which Peter Chen did too hard. Was I was saying earlier that those those um, intentional horror bits that weren't necessary. Um, I know that it was trying to convey atmosphere, but I think it went too far. Even though it w- they were nice touches in terms of, oh wow, that's technically impressive, but unnecessary, completely unnecessary. Whereas um, Fu Chen knew um, he had a creepy story on his hands, and all he needed to do was creep people out with what he's got, and he didn't need to have a, such a heavy hand um, the way that Peter Chen does. And I think that really sort of distinguished or differentiates them as as directors. Whereas you know, got Fu Chen. Who, who is maximalist in his own way, but he wouldn't go out of his way to make something to buck to a trend, whereas Peter Chan has become what he has become, which is, um, quite frankly, I think he's more of a businessman than a uh, than filmmaker, and I feel like Applause Picture was the beginning of that, and so was um, Coming Home. I mean, Going Home uh, was also the beginning of that, uh, where he really much, very much became more of a businessman than uh, a, a, a real pure pure filmmaker so to speak to me that's an unfortunate term but of course going home is still uh uh by itself is still a very good film and like uh you know we talked about the length of the film luckily he doesn't have to stretch it too long it 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 did feel a bit stretched by the end but still he knew where to stop and he stopped and he didn't try to make something more of it and he kept it he showed constraint in economical storytelling essentially so so it was it was fine um i i like it and but i find it very flawed even to this day as for availability uh, worth noting though that uh, internationally uh, the first free free uh, was released after free extremes so it's labeled in most places as as free extremes 2 so uh, if you look up free extremes 2 you're going to get the first free and that contains going home uh, and cheap dvd options are out there both in the uk and the us and uh, hong kong dvd options are a bit harder to get by include uh, to get including the director's cut version of going home that runs a few minutes longer that that has been that has been quite elusive uh, along with the original uh, panorama dvd and there's been no uh, reissue as far as i know so that's it uh, uh, two uh, widely different movies but from an era of uh, hong kong film filmmaking and animation wise and um, horror drama wise if you will that's worth examining and uh, thank you very much for the perspective that you bring Kevin because um, it's a perspective I can't tap into both as uh, perspective hmm, for sure speaking of perspective um, 
I'm wondering if you mentioned the link between the two films. Or I don't know if you had intentionally picked the link between the two films. Um, no, this was random and sometimes this this just happens. Yeah, see, I thought the link was uh, Cassandra Ng is, is Mother Life is Madol, um, the mother, and her her partner is Peter Chan. I thought that was the link. I'm not that clever. Not that <laughs> clever at all. So... <laughs> That's the that's the seven degrees or that's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon for you. There's you have in this film who is a partner of life the life partner of Peter Chan. So that that that's your link. Now you can tell people that that's your link. Um, I'm gonna edit this and take credits, and uh, <laughs> uh, gonna include some raspberry sounds on your end of the track and make you come off as a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm Kevin Ma. <laughs> can you tell me something about how clever you are? I will, sir. <laughs> Uh, but no, that's uh, now that you say it, that that, that I, I didn't know it like firmly, firmly. But I do remember sometime hearing about that connection that uh, Sondrum and uh, Peter Chan uh, are together. I know uh, he's produced at least two movies that she was in, um, the Golden Chicken movies. He also produced her directorial debut two years ago, uh, Goldbusters. Right on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so they still work very closely together, obviously. Very cool. Well, I, I thank you regardless uh, for your perspective, and uh, I'm going to give you the floor to plug whatever you like. It's going to come out in a month or two, so uh, bear that in mind, but uh, you can plug it regardless, whatever you like. So the floor is yours. Um, aside from the East Screen, West Screen podcast, uh, I'm also the entertainment editor of the Cathay Pacific and the Cathay Dragon in-flight magazines, uh, Discovery and Silk Road. I uh, So you can read those on a plane. I also uh, contribute some articles to the di- this digital version of it. That's uh, discovery.cathaypacific.com. I recently wrote a piece introducing 20 cool movie locations in Hong Kong, not necessarily always the ones that you know like i didn't mention ifc2 because i know everyone talks about ifc2 as the one that batman jumps off of but no i did not mention that one um i did mention infernal affairs one. i did mention um something from um the, mil- the milky way uh, offices <laughs> where, oh, where of course quantong <laughs> yes i mentioned quantong of course uh, and things like that so you can go and search for that on uh, discovery.cathypacific.com I also sometimes when I have time which I have very little of these days I run a website called Asia in Cinema uh, you can find it at www.asiaincinema.com that's one word asiaincinema.com excellent uh, and, oh, and uh, sorry yes. follow, oh, sorry one more thing you can also follow me on Twitter I am at the golden rock that's one word the golden rock uh, on Twitter yeah sorry about that kid thank you regardless and for all your podcast on fire network needs go to podcastonfire.com check out the show post for any relevant links trailers and so forth and links to kevin's endeavors and we're gonna keep it short and sign off so thank you everybody for listening i've been kennedy and with me was a special co-host and co-producer and honorary guest was uh, kevin ma who's gonna get back to the bun snatching training uh, immediately after signing off on this podcast of course so say goodbye kevin and thank you very much Thank you for having me, Ken. Goodbye, everyone.